Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, backing the BBC. Broadcast Magazine has launched a campaign to keep the licence fee. Should the wider media now also get behind the beep? Funding investigative journalism. Alan Rusbridger has said newspapers cannot afford the costly legal battles that go with printing stories about corporate corruption and tax avoidance. Do we need a new way to fund this type of journalism? And injunctions trumping Parliament. The Irish media have been prohibited from reporting the contents of a parliamentary speech after the court said it was protected by an injunction. Is this the end of parliamentary privilege? And joining us as ever are two of the media's best and brightest, Jake Cantor, is news editor at Broadcast Magazine and Ed Butler is a senior broadcast journalist at the BBC World Service. Media Focus. So first up, the appointment of John Whittingdale as Culture Secretary and the upcoming BBC Charter negotiations are fan fears that the government is about to cut the licence fee. In response, Broadcast Magazine has launched a new Backing the BBC campaign, arguing that a subscription-based model would, quote, undermine the corporation's unified whole, end quote, and hurt the wider media. Jake, why have you launched this campaign? Well, this is something we've been working on uh, for a good few months now. And uh, fundamentally, we believe that there is a uh, a huge untapped reservoir of latent support for the BBC in the media industry. Uh, The BBC's detractors have very loud and vocal mouthpieces in the right-wing press. And that's not matched anywhere else, I don't think. And what Broadcast wanted to do was just bring together these voices of support and present them in a coherent way so that the message is loud and clear for the government. So tell us about the, the plans for the campaign. Are you going to get a coalition together of these, these <laughs> untapped, uh, silent, as yet silent masses? We haven't called it a coalition. I, I like that suggestion. Um, we launched last week and uh, we put a focus on the production side of the industry, particularly uh, independent production companies who make television. Um, so we've had some fantastic supporters join us already, companies including All Three Media, which is one of the biggest production companies in the UK, makes shows like The Only Way is Essex, huge drama companies, the company behind Poldark, Mammoth Screen. And as the campaign progresses, we will unveil other supporters, different constituent parts of the media industry. So this week we'll look at uh, writers and directors. We have some fantastic names, which I'm not going to, revealed just yet but (laughs) they'll they'll all become clear and then we'll look at news and journalism and then beyond that we might have a bit of stardust and uh, some some on-screen talent uh, will be rallying to our cause. I mean it's a great campaign and I personally support it but if I could play devil's advocate for a second I mean clearly this might annoy some of your other readers should we say those that work (laughs) for some of the other broadcasters. I think I think that's probably fair Um, what we've tried to do throughout the process is make very clear that this is a message of qualified support. And part of our statement of support is that we want the BBC to be transparent, accountable and efficient. And uh, broadcasters made very clear that our objectivity is not under question. Uh, We will continue to hold the BBC to account wherever uh, wherever possible. And there are some major issues on the BBC's agenda, things like uh, BBC Three and the decision there, and the potential to move uh, its in-house production arm out into the commercial sector. Those are hot issues at the moment, and we will continue to report on them in a fair and balanced way. The BBC is not going to get any favours from broadcast. So, Jake, how would you deal with the, the two traditional challenges to the BBC, though, in terms of the, the, the licence fee 
gives the Beeb a lot of money and some of their programmes and services are quite over-resourced compared to their commercial competitors. And then the other thing is, what would you say to the second charge that some of their commercial competitors would say that the BBC does so, so many things so well that in fact it's not worth commercial competitors actually doing that because it's already done so well and therefore they're effectively priced out? I, I think those are those are real issues for the BBC. I think... Um... Yeah, we didn't realise the concerns or the extent of the concerns that ITV has about BBC until we we started this process with the campaign. Um, uh, It's clear that ITV believes that the BBC perhaps treads on commercial toes too much. Um, The BBC's plans to launch a plus one channel for BBC One are causing quite a bit of consternation uh, among some of its commercial rivals. Um, And as I said earlier, the commercialisation of BBC Studios, as they're calling it, is also concerning quite a few people in the market. But the BBC would bring you back to its Rethian values to inform, educate and entertain. And um, the latter of those three, the the entertainment part, is a big part of what the BBC does. And uh, the BBC says that it should continue to do that and, uh, and broadcast shows like The Voice. Ed, I mean, one of the things that the BBC must feel quite lonely sometimes is it's damned if it does anything, really. There's criticism within the BBC. You've got the Murdoch press trying to uh, spank you all the time, your commercial competitors like ITV. Does this feel a little less lonely that you've actually got some immediate friends now that are prepared to come out and support you? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I suppose we haven't had the debate uh, for a few years now about, you know, the charter and uh, where we're going and uh, and what the funding is going to look like and indeed, you know, to what extent commercial uh, constraints or commercial ideas could come in to the to the output of the BBC, at least around the edges. I think what is interesting here, though, I mean, particularly at this time after five years of austerity and everything else, is how the public at large will re-engage with this conversation because it, it hasn't happened probably since the financial crisis and that's really changed probably the way that people feel about everything, right? I mean, whether it's... Uh, whether it's it's public service broadcasting or, or, or how many nurses are in the local hospital or, or, or you know, what, what state benefits are available. Um, so I, I think it's interesting to put this back on the map. Obviously, as a BBC person, you know this. You know this from your previous podcasts. Yeah. We're not allowed to say too much, perhaps, or I, I don't feel inclined to say too much. I want to, people to make up their own mind about what the BBC does or doesn't deserve. But it does seem to me that this kind of, the soft power conversation, which is actually, I think, kind of what the... I mean, I, as you know, work for World Service Radio. The soft power thing, which has always been the, the, the rationale for what World Service does specifically, we're going out there, we have absolutely no... that We're not selling propaganda as such. We're just selling impartiality in a world mm. that doesn't get very much of it uh, in many parts of the world. And so that that is seen as a saleable asset that is, you know, one of the top things. It's our soldiers doing peacekeeping and the world services, the two things around the world that they get from Britain. Uh, and, and therefore, it's worth a few tens of millions every year, which is what, what it costs to run. Um, and I think that that conversation now could be spun out perhaps more widely. And that's perhaps what's going on here with this broadcast thing, or at least it will go on if and when the current culture secretary does decide to do something radical, and obviously we don't know yet. That soft power thing is, uh, has been very prominent in our campaign so far. People saying that the BBC's reputation around the world is next to, you know, is second to none, and any attempt to diminish that would be perverse. Um, having said that, and, and despite all of the things we've said here, I don't think broadcast is an, under any illusion that the BBC is going to have a tough time of it during charter renewal. 
Uh, I would be shocked if the BBC got anything other than a freeze or maybe worse to the licence fee when negotiations begin again. What some of the key battlegrounds that might emerge are around um, this thing called top slicing, Mm. whereby the government dips into the licence fee to fund other projects uh, we saw that in 2010 with things like broadband rollout yep. uh, and the lottery. television. Yeah. And now there's talk of things like funding the license fee for over 75 year olds, which currently comes out of uh, the government's budget. Um, DCMS. So it's, uh, you know, it's going to be a tricky time for the BBC. And that's one of the main reasons that uh, Broadcast is doing what it's doing. I'm interested also that you are rolling this out week by week in these different sectors. I mean, of course, the big thing about the Beeb, the problem about the Beeb has always been that it's been, uh, you know, half a dozen or more things. Uh, it's been news and current affairs, it's been drama, it's been online, it's been all these different things which people respond to very differently and very few people probably respond to all of them. Uh, and you're pulling them out week by week and getting in those uh, star celebrities or players in that world. Obviously, as a broadcast magazine, your main um, your main market, your main audience is 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 are the broadcast sort of specialists and not the wider public. But it it is, I suppose, significant if if that were to galvanise people in these different threads of output to actually talk to each other more, you know, in this context, if this conversation can gather some kind of pace, so that there is a public debate. Because I'm not always sure that. You know, the public debate is, is a little ghetto-wise when it comes to the slashing of different parts. And I remember with the World Service, mm. um, that was a big subject a few years ago, and, and it did feel very ghetto-wise. There was the odd sort of minister, and, and I think William Hague stood up and a few other people made kind of nice comments. But on the whole, it was it, it felt very much locked in a world, because obviously most Britons don't, don't listen to World Service, or they haven't in the past. I mean, do you think, though, in one of the ways that the BBC has it difficult is that clearly it's a public service. If I've got a, a local hospital, I don't want any wards or any services to be cut. But with the BBC, it's slightly different because, you know, the, the unique way the BBC is funded means that it can guarantee impartial news coverage, for example, Radio Force Fantastic. But does it really need to make Sherlock, for example? You know, is that something that, that could quite easily be cut? Is this something where we could say, look, this is what the BBC should be about? But sh- I mean, I love Sherlock, of course, but do we really need the BBC to produce EastEnders? Couldn't a satellite channel? fund that and, and, and pay for it by subscription. Yeah, I mean, obviously the orthodoxy has always been uh, you, you can't sort of, you can't tailor output. You have to go with the flow and deliver everything. Otherwise, the entire meaning of a state broadcaster is undermined. I, I suspect you're right that longer term... It'll just be doing the worthy stuff. Well, maybe no not wants. just the worthy <laughs> stuff, but they'll need to to look very, very closely and literally sector by sector. I mean, obviously, there was that certain amount of shock, wasn't there, when, when suddenly we had uh, BBC Three, BBC Four, suddenly all of these new channels suddenly appeared at a time of, of, of retrenchment in terms of the fee, and you're kind of going, how is this working? We're, we're kind of growing and shrinking at the same time, and um, now, there was a logic to that. It was very much part of the management's uh, 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 thinking. But, I mean, I suspect, I mean, I'm not really making a judgment whether that's a good or a bad idea. I just do think that, um, as you say, with a new government, with a particular probably general attitude about making cuts across the board, that there's 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 no way that they can't come back to that conversation about what are the limits of what a public service broadcaster should do and is that you know it's not unlimited perhaps there are sections around the edges at the very least where they should pull back and they should you know own up to pulling back i think that conversation is going to become much more focused over the next uh, few months uh the bbc is going to publish a policy paper 
where it will probably set out some of the options if it has uh, a certain amount cut from the license fee. Uh, and you might see it talking about threats to services like BBC4, you know, maybe BBC News, uh, you know, there'll, there'll, there'll be a list of uh, sort of unsavoury um, suggestions on there. Mm. And as we've seen with BBC3 and uh, Six Music uh, a few years ago, Whenever a BBC service is threatened, there is undoubtedly a... A huge uh, mobilisation yeah, of public yeah. support. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you yeah, know, it's going to be interesting times and there's going to be a lot of debate. Can I just do a quick plug for the pledge and, and where yeah. people can sign up if they want to support Please the do, BBC? Yeah. If, uh, if you, if you want to sign your support and, uh, and have your say, it's broadcastnow.co.uk forward slash backing the BBC. So, Jake, tell us a little bit more about this campaign. So, uh, will you be facilitating some of this debate in terms of if I think Sherlock's a waste of money or that ITV <laughs> should make it? Is, is that website where I should be making these, these cases? I mean, when you say qualified support, what does that actually mean? And, and, al- that- and also, what's going to be the outcome for the campaign? Do you want the minister to, to sign the pledge? And uh, Tell me more about, about the process and the outcome. Yeah. So qualified support is um, we will entertain other views, views that um, are not perhaps quite in line with uh, the overall message because we want a debate about the BBC. In fact, we carried a piece today uh, calling for the abolition of the BBC, which was all part of our campaign. And, you know, we, 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 when we say qualified, as say we want to entertain different views. And the goal ultimately... Um, uh, obviously, we'd like to have some influence over John Whittingdale's thought process as he uh, prepares to sit down with the BBC and thrash out charter renewal. Probably end up writing a letter of some sort to him personally. Uh, we'll probably write a letter to the BBC Trust Chairman, Rona Fairhead, as well. It may not be a tangible outcome, but hopefully we'll help shape opinion and make people think twice. I mean, Ed, just in closing on this one, do you think that this will be the traditional round of bluster that the, the whoever the Secretary of State is will always say they're, they're going to have, they're going to think the unthinkable, but then in the end, the Beeb gets a small chop in its budgets and then everyone just moves on? Do you think that it'll be more of the same? I mean, John, in particular, having been chair of the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, he knows what he's doing and he also knows that if you pull on one of these strings on the tapestry, the whole thing's going to unravel. Yeah, I mean, it does make me think that, uh, you know, having said at a time of austerity, will the public at large care that much about more swinging cuts to the beam? I'm not sure. But I am also not sure that it would be in the government's interests to do anything too, too radical here. I mean, it's not actually part of its core agenda to reduce whatever it is, 12 billion from the uh, the state budget. Uh, it's not. It's not within the state budget, and I, I suspect they will be swinging also at their own core support across the home counties. You know what I mean? There are the, the people who love Sherlock. Uh, a lot of them vote Conservative, and uh, and that's and that's going to be you know part of the part of the conversation too. I don't really see what's in it for any individual politician to do anything truly root and branch to the BBC. When, to be honest a gradual erosion of the BBC, if that is uh, the choice of politicians over the next successive parliaments, would probably do the job for them. So next up, in his last remarks as editor-in-chief at The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger has said that newspapers now cannot afford to pay the expensive legal costs that go with running a story on corporate corruption or tax avoidance. As profits fall at newspapers, some have suggested that social media can now hold companies to account and that journalists should look to new models like crowdfunding. Ed... Do you think Alan Rusbridger is right? Well, I mean, what's obviously true, uh, I think it's there in black and white that all of the major papers... Um, are skint. 
a, a skint. Yeah, or at least a, 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 a sliding subsidies. I mean, you know, if, if you're in the financial press, you may be doing okay uh, because you can charge um, subscriptions, particularly for your online content, which isn't possible uh, for the major papers except for the Times. But then uh, I'm not quite sure how many people actually pay for that. And so the, the, the problem really is, uh, obviously, there are declining revenues and investigative journalism is expensive. And, uh, and I've, I've, I've engaged in investigative journalism occasionally myself. Uh, that's on the BBC's uh, uh, wallet. But, you know, even there, it's becoming harder and harder to do, to do those things. So, I mean, it's unquestionably true as a broad statement um, that that is going on. I suppose... I would be a devil's advocate in a small way and make the point that corporate corruption, tax avoidance, they are obviously voguish topics these days. Um, they haven't always been. And I cast my mind back 15, 20 years when newspapers were wealthy. And I don't remember millions of corporate uh, corruption and tax avoidance stories then. I mean, I think that they've always been incredibly hard stories to get past an editor who goes, I don't want to be sued. I mean, no one ever wants to be sued. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's pretty easy to be sued on something like that. You need an army of accountants backing you up to, to prove that what you're, you're claiming is, is watertight and will stand up in a court of law. And normally, uh, if it's a company you're up against, they're going to have deeper wallets than you, however rich your newspaper. So do you think it's always going to be a battle as to who's, um, you know, who's got the deepest wallet and who's got who's going to back down at the last minute? Well, yeah, uh, I suppose so. I mean, you know, I I think the thing is also, and and you know, he does make this point. It was interesting actually reading the article that he wrote because it did seem to me slightly kind of it's almost um, going around in a little bit of a circle because he ended up saying in the same piece that uh, the Guardian had uh, actually more robust finances than it had done for a while and. Uh, it was looking quite good now, and uh, they're in a better place than most people. And uh, and so you've got the feeling that maybe they could fight a battle or two uh, when judiciously chosen on their part. If well, they you don't look, have Alan's big salary to pay anymore, do they? Uh, well, that may be it. Yeah, I'm not quite What's his successor going to be earning? I don't know. I think Catherine's on a few hundred grand less or something. Uh, I don't well, know. But... You could be right. But, the, I mean, the thing is, the, the, the social media point, I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? If you look back at the tax avoidance stories we've had in the last two or three years, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, I'm not encyclopedic on this, but um, I suspect they were driven more than anything by public rage. If you think of the campaigns against Starbucks and things like that, they were actually they were they were driven by Twitter and Facebook mostly. Uh, now it may be that they were they were triggered by a story elsewhere. It might have been you know the the one of the select committees actually kind of spawning the story rather more than the newspapers themselves and then and then it going on to social media but um i think you don't expect social media to uh unearth the story i suppose uh, on the whole you don't expect too many whistleblowers to go onto social media and declare who they are and be believed perhaps through that mouthpiece because it's it's full of uh, liars and cranks let's face it quite often but it, when it when it gathers storm, it's all really about, isn't it, about the uh, the public agenda and the public rage, and that is what companies really listen to. But how can someone trust any old person they don't know who's tweeting uh, that someone might be dodgy or they've got something well, to hide? Exactly, the, the problem is with the Telegraph to. or the Times or the CNN. At least you sure. know there's an editorial process. You trust in what their editorial judgment is. Absolutely, and we may come on to this with stories around parliamentary privilege in a bit. But I think that when you 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 know you're looking at um, uh, the specifics of of tax declaration, for example, these things are now because they are in the political agenda. They will come out 
through um, individual, uh, often you know, reports through governments, through 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 NGOs, through other things, where it's become apparent, or indeed a whistleblower who will who will stand up and make a specific, isolated statement that will then spin off into a wider kind of snowball of bad publicity for a company. Uh, and then the other thing, I suppose, would be. Um, that when companies are getting into corruption stories, a lot of the time these are very globalized companies, and the corruption story will have emerged from some faraway place where the rule of, you know, well, basically secrecy is less well kept. I mean, the problem is lawyers in Europe and and North America tend to be very good at what they do, uh, and uh, and accountants. And if there is something to, to hide, they they're very good at hiding it. I think um, when a company's doing wrong in a faraway place. Um, sometimes those things can come out if you're in Africa or Asia or something like that. But, Jake, this equally applies to the broadcasters as well. Uh, it does. There's, un- there's no doubt that uh, investigative journalism is uh, is under pressure at some of the broadcasters and elsewhere. I didn't want to get too carried away. Uh, you only have to look at the work that The Guardian's done on HSBC and, uh, and, and look at what's going on with FIFA at the moment to be reminded of the work that Sunday Times did uh, uh, on investigating corruption... Uh, at the uh, the world football governing body um yeah this is remarkable work and producing great results um the thing that probably worries me a bit more is is more insidious commercial influence uh i think back to peter oborn and and his resignation from the telegraph and uh, the fact that uh, the Telegraph didn't uh, carry those stories because HSBC was one of its biggest advertisers. Of course, we should say that they robustly deny any, any wrongdoing. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Lest we be closed down by the Telegraph's lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> Which sort of speaks to your point, doesn't it? <laughs> your question, anyway. Well, I mean, exactly. And there is that, 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 that creeping commercialisation. I have friends who work in, in some of the papers and, you know, it, it's obvious, particularly when you get into, like, the arts pages and things like that, you know, are they there to actually review books or sell books? It's not really entirely clear sometimes. It is very difficult when you see these things online, isn't it? Because whether they give a poor or a, a positive review, there's always a link that says that you can buy this. And I, to some extent, I wonder whether you can, uh, uh, whether these things are just algorithmically generated. It's it's always odd, isn't it, though, when there's a terrible plane crash or some kind of tragedy in a holiday destination, then Google scans the page and then there's always an advert next to the tragic event saying, do you want to fly here and have a nice holiday? So, Jake. In terms of budget, then, do you think there's a challenge here that um, that it just boils down to money at the end of the day and that broadcasters will just take a view that it's just not worth a risk? No, I don't think that. I think there'll always be room for investigative journalism at the broadcasters. I think Channel 4 is doing great work uh, and the BBC consistently does good work. But, there, but there's, there's said, always there... a risk, isn't there, that if you, if you do it, you might find that there is no wrongdoing. There's got to be a suspicion of wrongdoing. And if you're a commissioning editor, that whether that you, you, you think the company's up to no good or not, it's still going to cost you 100 grand either way to find out. Possibly. I mean, the BBC's got the licence fee to fall back on and, uh, and use as, uh, you know, to fund investigative journalism, although that is you know, slightly under pressure these days. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I know friends in Panorama, you know, and they, they you know, Clearly, they have a, a whole series of duds for each good story that they run, and that will cost time and money to to investigate. And that's partly why it's so expensive to make that kind of thing that you have a lot of kind of cul-de-sacs, uh, you know, in your I mean, investigation. I mean, Jake, so, you mentioned Channel Four just earlier. Then, I mean, do you think that a, a, an investigative commissioning editor would feel the pressure more keenly than, say, someone at the Beeb? Uh, mm, difficult question. I, I don't think so. Uh, I think. Channel 4 knows what plays well with its audience. And uh, if you look at dispatches at the moment, they tend to tap into more consumer-friendly themes. Uh, it's a bit broader. 
uh, a bit more accessible than than some of the stuff that the BBC does, and uh, you know it, it knows its audience well and, and will play to those strengths. I would make another point though here, which is, and you know, and Russ Bridge just touched on it by talking about corporate corruption and tax avoidance, which is we are in an era. Let's face it, the last six or seven years where everyone loves to kind of stick in the boot into bankers and the rich and all of those kinds of things. They are kind of memes that are running quite hot at the moment, and and newspapers like all publications go where the money goes, and the money can be in those things for investigative journalism. Now, okay, it's a kind of lost leader, right? You, you, you spend a ton of money, more disproportionately a large amount of money, let's say, on a couple of investigations that you can splash across your front page. The Sunday Times has done it for years and done a, a great job of branding itself as the, you know, the Sunday paper that produces the scoop, right? As of the, the insight of, team. Of, exactly, of the serious papers. And um, they obviously have considered, obviously they've got Murdoch's cash behind them, but they can consider that that is is money well spent because it sets up an entire brand for a newspaper and uh, the people who are going to be buying the paper each day, perhaps through the week, um, the, the Times, obviously. And, and and so in that case, you know, I think that we're, we're in a point now where maybe the public appetite for investigative stuff is actually more thirsty, more driven than it was maybe 10 years ago. I mean, it's just it's part of the culture. Uh, we love we, we're quite a cynical bunch these days as, as a nation, and we and we, we quite like to we we like to, we like the odd conspiracy that turns out to be true. Well, I mean, good investigative reporters always know when they've got a good story, and they'll be like a dog with a bone as well. well that's my belief. I mean, you only got to look at someone like Marion Jones and uh, the work he did on Jimmy Savile. Well, where did that end up? <laughs> uh, if, you, uh, if you look at the outcomes uh, of his perseverance, and it tells you everything you need to know about that story. I think the, the bigger risk, perhaps, to in, in investigative journalism might be a general sense of apathy and, uh, no, everything's OK. You know what I mean? It, it wouldn't be in the ether that we wanted to mm. read that stuff. And as long as there is the appetite, I mean, you, there is no end of schlock websites trying to kind of produce this stuff. Obviously, they don't have the money, uh, but they're, they're doing the same thing online for no budget, just kind of coming up with conspiracy stories. And, and people read them, they get bored of them, and then they go to a serious paper to find out something that might actually be true. So last up, the Irish media have been told not to report a parliamentary speech about the tax affairs of mogul Dennis O'Brien after the court said an injunction extended to the politician's remarks. The decision has been widely criticised by the media, but O'Brien's lawyers say that claims made in the politician's speech were false and so the protection should not apply. Jake, is this the end of parliamentary privilege? <laughs> well, I, I hope not. Um, and I would just say that there's been an update on this story. I don't know if you've seen uh, the Irish Times and RTE mounting a high court bid to actually report on this issue. Uh, they're also seeking judicial clarification uh, around uh, the remarks that were made in Parliament. Uh, and I think it's quite an important piece of work they're doing because you know it's always a bit worrying when politicians and lawmakers attempt to dictate what the press can and can't report. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're seeing this conversation going on in the UK as well with Theresa May's plans... Um, uh, to strengthen Ofcom's role in taking tough measures against broadcasters who um, air uh, views on extremism or you know, stories on extremism. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would dip in here. Okay, I'm going to chuck in uh, Devil's Advocate on a, a small level. Dominic Grieve, I noticed in 2011, stated specifically, this was when he was Attorney General uh, for the previous government, that uh, parliamentary privilege does not necessarily... 
mean that the media, uh, a story is repeatable when it is subject to an injunction. He actually made that clear back then in the UK. Now, I mean, it wasn't, it was a grey area. That was the way he expressed it. And obviously these things do have to be thrashed out um, in the courts when they happen. Where has, I mean, it's an interesting question, and looking back, parliamentary privilege really kind of triggered something, spun something out. I mean, it does happen, isn't it? The Ryan Giggs story uh, uh, two or three years ago with well, the, the, the whole super injunction argument, of course, was broken. The minute an MP stood up in the chamber and said, you know, it's Ryan Giggs, gov, uh, everyone could report it at that point because you're reporting parliamentary proceedings at that point. Yes, exactly. And that is the principle here, right? So, uh, I mean, it's not... It's not as though the, the 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 media is full of stories that have been broken by an MP getting up and asking a question. Trafagora, I think, was another one. That was that company that was accused. That was of... Alan hinting on Twitter. I think that gave that one away, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I, exactly. So, I mean, they, they are occasionally you can pick them out. Uh, they're every couple of years. I mean, I'm not obviously principle is huge and hugely important, and that's what we're talking about today. We're not talking about you know practice too much, but I think it does need to be clothed a little bit. In, in, surely, in the truth of the practice, which is that uh, these things don't come along terribly often. And actually, as in the Ryan Giggs case, when something does get mentioned, again, social media, they take over. And it, and that actually very often drives a story after. Well, Ed, let me play uh, God's advocate to your devil's advocate, <laughs> <laughs> if that's such a thing. Surely you don't want a news editor having to second guess whether he or she can report something that was said in Parliament, in, in open Parliament. I mean, that, that can't be right, surely. No, that can't be right. But again, I think in the Irish case, correct me if I'm wrong, that wasn't the case here either. I mean, they were they, they were just told in advance there was an injunction against this being spoken. So obviously there was no lack of clarity about it. I don't think uh, if they were, you know, they had an injunction against them, it wouldn't, I assume, lead to uh, legal action. You know, it would It would have to be, they would have to be clearly defying an explicit injunction to, 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 to be taken to court afterwards. I mean, Jake, from a broadcaster's point of view, this is a hornet's nest though, isn't it? I mean, BBC Parliament, for example, broadcasts live proceedings from the chamber. Surely they can't have it on a time delay now to decide whether something might breach an injunction or not. It's a difficult... I'm not entirely sure how the BBC would handle this. I mean, they'd probably choose not to broadcast it on BBC Parliament... I'm if sure it's live, yeah. obviously yeah. they don't have any choice. But then uh, it's always the thing with live broadcasting, right? I mean, you just you, some some guy says, you know, so and so is a paedophile live on air, then you're, you're you're in trouble. But you just deny it <laughs> as an after statement. Uh, and I think if it's parliamentary privilege, I would have thought there must just there must inevitably be a huge amount of leeway granted if you're if you're allowed to roll, uh, you know, live coverage as indeed. We we are expected to do, I think, you know, I mean, or at least we're expected to give a good, a good, good crack of the whip to parliamentary uh, output on the BBC. That 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 we would suddenly be uh, have things thrown at us for, uh, for for broadcasting what some kind of hotshot MP uh, shot his mouth off about. You're right, though. I mean, I, I remember for my sins a few years ago when it was still broadcasting, I went on Richard and Judy as a guest, and just before I went live, the producer handed me, like, an eight-page indemnity document that basically said, don't say these following swear words. And I signed it, and I thought, well, even what does that that must cover them legally in some way, because they still can't stop me saying anything. It wasn't time-delayed. But uh, it, it is very difficult. I mean, Jake, where do you think that this will go, though? I mean, do you think this will um, eventually sort itself out? And as you say, there's, there's a number of developments already today. Do you think this is a bit of a storm in the teacup and everything will settle down in a few days or do you think there's a, a direction of travel here that people ought to be worried about in the long term? It probably depends on how principled the argument becomes. I mean we're talking about principle here aren't we and if they if, if the Irish press believe that this is uh, potentially a turning point 
and something that might have repercussions in the future, then I think they'll fight tooth and nail to have their views heard and uh, potentially report on this in the way that they want to. Yeah, I mean, it is about the establishment of precedent, isn't it? We are talking about the Irish. I guess a different set of precedents would have to be established in the UK courts for it to apply in the UK. But um, that is surely the way that these things emerge. I referred earlier to the Dominic Grieve statement in 2011. He was, even he, as the Attorney General, was a little bit vague about what exactly uh, the law was going to be. He's a liar, isn't he? They're always vague. Well, <laughs> of course. The best. Uh, so, so it was going to take uh, the law lords or somebody finally making a decision to say, mm, uh, this is th- these are the ground rules. But, you know, super injunctions perhaps haven't been around for long enough for us to... No, the to... problem is, and even the Supreme Court draws its power from the reservoir of parliamentary, uh, uh, statutory power, and, of course, common law, whereas with something like this about the nature of what Parliament uh, can be reported, I mean, who is the ultimate authority on that? Is it the Supreme Court or is it Parliament? It, you could write a dissertation on this, couldn't you, in terms of some legal students? I look forward to it. It'll <laughs> <laughs> be a page-turner, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, ultimately, then, do we think that this will sort itself out... You you know, the, as, you, as you say, Ed, the, the Attorney General doesn't quite know the answer to this as well. Do, do you think this is just a couple of cases at the margins and overall it'll, it won't be a problem? Yeah, I suspect it will. Um, I suspect that Parliament itself, I mean, actually, we, we're not even talking about the MPs here. Parliament itself is going to fight tooth and nail for <laughs> its right to be reported mm. when it does consider it necessary to say something that would be uh, considered libelous outside of the chamber. They're going to say it in uh, and they would like... It's to be reported because it's a point of, of public uh, public interest. And uh, and if that was taken away from the MP, it's almost taking it away from the MPs, you have to remember, that if, if mm. we're taking it away from the media, you're taking it away from the MPs as well. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I have a suspicion that these things will play out uh, not in too radical a way to uh, to be muzzling the press on this on this one. And again, when we look at the wider issues around libel right now, it is all about social media very often, isn't it? And uh, you could muzzle the press, but you're not going to muzzle Twitter if, if, if they've heard what so-and-so said in, uh, in some committee or, or, or in the Commons. Brilliant. Well, gentlemen, I think we've run out of metaphorical tape there on the podcast, so it's, thank you ever so much for coming. Uh, Jake, how do people follow you on Twitter? And tell us once again how people back this campaign and interact with it. What's the website, URL, etc.? So I'm on Twitter uh, via... Uh, Jake underscore Cantor, Cantor spelled K-A-N-T-E-R. And uh, if you want to pledge your support to our campaign, it would be much appreciated. Uh, The website is broadcastnow.co.uk forward slash backing the BBC. And I am Ed Butler too on Twitter. Ed Butler number two. I was going to say, you're Ed Butler and the the numeric digit. I am the second Ed Butler. (laughs) It was the way you segued in so seamlessly there. I I am Ed Butler number two uh, (laughs) on on Twitter. But I mean, I also would like to draw people's attention to um, Business Daily, which is our daily show. Which uh, covers global issues in a very soft uh, way. We're not. We're not kind of. It's not hard business like kind of company reports. It's it really a bit like is. Wake Up to Money on Five Live. Well, I wouldn't say so. No, I think it's. Uh, we we follow that program closely, but th- this Listen is, to ours it every is, morning. Ours is more um, about the kind of the global zeitgeist about where money is going, money and power are taking us. Wow. So it is. It's much more gentle, general, and uh, probably political. And how do people that. tune in? Uh, well, we get a million podcasts um, uh, a week, so uh, that's... Uh, I've heard podcasting decent. is the future. That's what they say, isn't it? But I... Uh, I and, uh, you know, our, our audience is the BBC turns out the numbers and uh, they're all slightly uh, bamboozling and, and one 
I shouldn't say this probably, but there is a certain confusion always about how reliable one, you know, the Togolese numbers really are. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, so when when the numbers come in, we we're not really sure. But but uh, yeah, the podcast numbers are going up, which is actually a very refreshing thing generally for the BBC as we start slowly in our creaking old-fashioned way to catch up with everyone else on social media and actually puts to put our stuff out there better. Absolutely. So in, just in closing then, how do people access the podcast? What's the website URL where someone can sign up? Well, if you just Google uh, or use any other search engine to reach BBC Business Daily, you will find us immediately and the podcast will be available there. And everything we do is, is online for a year, so uh, you, you've got a good archive there immediately. For those that want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Paul W.R. Blanchard and you can go to mediafocus.org.uk and leave your email address in the box and receive a shiny email once a fortnight letting you know when the podcast is released. But that's it for now. My name's Paul Blanchard. The associate producer was Jordan Greenway. Thanks for listening and catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!